You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the November 17th edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Today, we're focusing on business, and it's also our last episode before Thanksgiving. So to all of our listeners out there, have a wonderful Thanksgiving if you are in the U.S., of course. Um, As always, I have with me Susan Sue, who is a partner focused on climate investing at Toba Capital. She also serves as a board member at the Carbon Business Council and a board advisor to the Environmental Voter Project. Hello, Susan. Hello. And we have Naeem Merchant, who runs Carbon Curve, a consultancy that works with NGOs and startups on scaling up carbon removal solutions. He publishes the Carbon Curve newsletter and podcast about the carbon removal industry and the new carbon economy. Hello, Naeem. Hey, good to be on. And as a resident Canadian, do you celebrate American or Canadian Thanksgiving? I celebrate both. Oh, that's nice. Cool. I love it. And uh, as always, Radhika Mulgafkar, Head of Supply and Methodology at Nori. So today we're going to talk about what I'm sure everybody has been thinking a little bit about in the environmental world. Um, World leaders were gathered in Egypt for COP27 to discuss our climate future. The U.S. elections provided a boost to the president who has overseen climate action and what could be the next Enron crash of crypto. So we're going to look at what this means for for the business of carbon removal. And we're going to start with the U.S. election. So, Susan, you work with the Environmental Voter Project. What's your reaction to this week's election? That's right, Radhika. I am a board advisor to the Environmental Voter Project, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit dedicated to uh, engaging, uh, first identifying and then engaging um, seldom voting environmentalists to participate, particularly in um, all of the down ballot elections that we're increasingly coming to understand make up um, the 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 vast majority of how our country actually works and gets things done. Um, and uh, EVP, so I took this cheat sheet straight from Nathaniel Stinnett, who is EVP's executive director. Um, I asked him to uh, contribute some thoughts for today's episode, and and EVP just had a has had a banner couple of years. Um, the organization is, uses data science to identify people who say that climate and environment are their number one issue, but yet do not vote. Um, and it's actually surprisingly, believe it or not, it is millions upon millions of eligible registered voters. It's not even, we're not even talking about people who aren't registered. It's over 16 million Um, And if anybody's been following any of the elections of the past few years, you know that our elections have been decided by far fewer than 16 million votes. Um, So it's actually a very large constituency that's actually sort of sitting on the sidelines um, and needing to be activated. And there are many reasons why people don't vote um, from, you know, kind of structural barriers to they find it confusing, they don't know how to, they don't think it makes a difference. Um, and so this is really not focused on changing their opinion about whom to vote for. It's more focused on changing their behavior of actually getting to the polls or mailing in their ballot on time. Um, that behavior of voting and particularly voting in down ballot elections, which is something I'll get to in a moment. 
So, um, you know, I think that there, it's interesting because if you look at the exit polls from this election, uh, you will see that around 9% of voters listed climate as their top priority, which sounds really small. But if you look at the ranking of issues, that actually ties it as at third place, tied with immigration. We hear so much about immigration from politicians. We hear so much about immigration driving voting behavior, but rarely do you hear climate driving voter behavior. Now this year it is tied, or this recent election has been tied with immigration. Um, abortion, you know, a huge issue that we've been hearing so much about this year, 10% of voters said that abortion was their top issue. Now compare that with 9% who said that climate was their top issue. That is so close. It's a squeaker. Now 48% said that economy and jobs was their top issue. So that makes a ton of sense, but you know, we have first place economy, second place abortion, third place immigration and climate tied. I mean, that is unbelievable, Radhika. Like I never in my life would have expected this because you know, for those of us who've been caring about this and working on this for a while, it always feels like you're kind of shouting into the void and nobody's listening. Well, that is not true anymore. Um, and so while 9% sounds small, it is huge because in the past, for example, recent past for the 2020 presidential election, only 4% of voters said that climate was a top issue for them. So now we're over double where we were just two years ago at the last major election. Um, so I think climate is making huge strides and it's really starting to show up in the election. There have been some pieces out in the media about, you know, we've all heard about the, the red wave that wasn't, and there've been some pieces about the green wave that actually was. Um, and I think this is, uh, you know, check back for more. This story is still developing for sure, but it's something that's really exciting for organizations, um, like EVP and others that work on, uh, whether it's policy advocacy or just getting people out to vote. Um, EVP this year focused on mobilizing almost 6 million um, climate first voters who had never in their lives, these are again, people who are registered to vote. They never in their lives had ever voted in a midterm before. So this is their first ever midterm, almost 6 million people who said that climate is their number one issue. I just think that it is absolutely astonishing. If you think about, and this is the comparison I always make, you know, the NRA, which has outsized influence on our politics, has about five and a half million members. Just this year alone, almost six million, five and a half to six million had never before voted in a midterm and yet said climate was their number one issue. Now imagine banding together all of those climate first voters to create a coalition like what the NRA has done only for a good cause, I mean, then you're talking about something really incredible. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, implications for that, that, that this election carries for climate, but um, it's really just like everything else we're seeing in the private sector and beyond, everything is mirroring uh, each other, which is pointing to people are starting to wake up and take action, whether that action is to cast a ballot in a certain direction um, or whether that action is to, uh, you know, start investing or um, get interested in carbon removal or carbon credits, what have you. And so I think that's really exciting. And it's starting to show in the election, even though it's still a single, single digit number, but you have to look at the growth rate. So Naeem, this, that was 
a great policy analysis. Uh, and Susan, I so appreciate it. I'm curious though, from like a business perspective, what an election like this means for entrepreneurs um, and what, what do you think the impact of the non-red wave and the green wave will have on how these business um, entities are thinking about sustainability, growing their businesses, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I, I just want to say before I get into that, um, just congrats to Susan and, and her, this, this amazing organization that she's involved with and having the impact it did. I mean, that's, those are big numbers. Those are election swinging numbers that we're talking about. And so that's, that's a really big deal. And we, I think, saw it play out in a way where an election turned out against any existing precedent. Like it's just not common that, you know, the, the party in power at the, in the White House holds on to the Senate and um, and hangs on to a lot of their house seats. I mean, that this is a this is a big deal. And as a result of that, I actually don't think this means a whole lot for entrepreneurs working in climate because the, you know, horror story version of what could have happened was, you know, an effort to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act or a lot of the policy progress that's been made over the last two years. And like, that's not really likely to happen. And so for right now, it's like, yes, control has changed hands, but I think that a lot of the policies that were made at, at the, the federal level are here to stay. And the benefits that accrue to entrepreneurs that are working in climate will stay largely intact. And so for entrepreneurs, at least, it's like heads down and get to work. I don't expect a lot of change. Um, you know, there'll be probably greater scrutiny around how some of these programs are going to be implemented or how funds are going to be used. But otherwise, there's not going to be a whole lot of change going forward for entrepreneurs. I think it's just, it's like the positive signal that a lot of the cl climate policy that we have seen over the last couple of years, uh, that signal is still strong. And so whatever it meant for businesses and entrepreneurs, uh, you know, a month ago, it's still it's still uh, just as relevant today. And, and that's a win in the context of a midterm election, I think. I would add there, there are a couple of specific things that um, are going to be really positive for entrepreneurs. For example, in New York, um, voters approved a $4.2 billion, um, basically climate bond, green bond measure called the Clean Water, Clean Air and Green Jobs Environmental Bond Act. And just the margin of approval, it was 68. So it, it'll change a little bit, but uh, as of, I think last week, 68% of voters approved um, and 28% and disapproved and 12% didn't uh, vote on it. But 68% approving is quite a loud majority. And I think that's going to be a couple of things. One, not only is it a, a decent chunk of change, $4.2 billion, but it's happening at the state level. And I think what we'll start seeing more and more is more of not just um, these kind of like pledges around net zero happening at the state level, which we've been seeing throughout this year, but actually the money um, flowing at the state level. And I think that means something very specific for entrepreneurs, which is that um, if you haven't considered bringing on a policy person or having some sort of resource dedicated to policy yet, um, really now is the time because um, the IRA is one thing and it's intricate enough. There are enormous opportunities and many pockets within the IRA and it's complex. It takes time to navigate. But now layered upon that, there's all of this 
local and regional and local all the way down to municipalities, but all the way up to the state level um, opportunities, really. And investors like to see entrepreneurs that know their policy. Investors like to see entrepreneurs that understand the opportunities for non-dilutive capital and also for really just sort of like public-private partnerships. Um, and so that can be a lot if you're, you know, fundraising, scaling your company, managing the day-to-day -day operations. And so I think just tactically something to, to, to consider with all of these tailwinds um, on the public side and with what's coming in from this election could be time to hire a policy person or, or engage a consultant, some resources there, because, um, you know, it, it's really a lot of funds and resources that are going to be on the table, um, sort of up for grabs for these entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, this bond in New York is one thing, but there'll be more and more and more um, as time goes on. I loved how you tied the business and policy together, Susan. That's such an important point that, you know, entrepreneurs have to understand their policy landscape to take full advantage of the funding mechanisms that are available to them. I did want to follow up on something you had said earlier, which is, you know, the EVP was able to mobilize 6 million environmental votes. Um, I was curious, one, it's a two-part question. One, why were these people sitting on the sidelines if they were already registered? I know you talked about barriers, but did you see any particular trend? Uh, and two, how did the EV, how did EVP overcome that barrier, those barriers? So EVP focused on the nearly 6 million voters. Um, it takes time to know exactly how many of them ended up taking action. They do know that about 900,000 of them cast early ballots, which is a very decisive action compared to not voting at all. Um, that, that's kind of going from, um, you know, junior leagues all the way to the majors in one swing. Uh, as for the reasons why people don't vote but are eligible, I mean, there are so many and it's a whole behavioral science episode just to, to dig into that. But, um, you know, I'll kind of just highlight one thing and tie it into Georgia. You know, here we are talking about Georgia again, two years later, but just tie it into the Georgia Senate runoff that's coming up, which is that um, a lot of people find voting to be still to be confusing. And when you look at who those people are, they tend to be voters of color. In Georgia, in the Senate race in particular, surveys have found that the highest proportion of voters who find this, uh, the rules around voting, especially in a runoff to be confusing are black voters, followed by Latino voters, followed by, you know, sort of uh, uh, smorgasbord of all voters of color. Um, and that is, that, is, that, is, that is speaking to a structural barrier. There are rules around how you can mail your ballot in, when you can, when you need to mail it in by, you can't do early voting all the way up until election day, you have to have voted early by the Friday before. This is in Georgia. These are all state by state specific, sometimes election by election specifics. And this stuff can be very, very confusing to people. I mean, it's confusing to me as well. Um, and I think those kind of things and the fact that we're often seeing changes, you know, Radhika, you, you probably saw here in Washington state, we had um, some propositions on the ballot that were looking at changing the way that we vote and, and adding ranked choice voting. All of these things can um, create mental barriers to people. Then, and then that's not to speak to the emotional barriers of, well, what's the point? One vote doesn't matter. You know, those kind of defeatist um, 
thoughts that people often mistaken thoughts, actually, that people often have, because by the way, I'll just put a little plug here. Voting is not about winning. It's about being counted. Even if you lose and you get counted, you still won because you, while politicians look at numbers, they don't just look at who won the election. They look at how many people who care about a certain topic are showing up um, through their mail-in or through uh, in-person voting. So anyway, I'll, I'll just say that that's a big part of it. And that's why get out the vote efforts are just an incredible bang for your buck. Like if you can um, have a cordial conversation with somebody where you don't have to change their mind from voting for one candidate to the, uh, a candidate on the opposite end of the spectrum, all you have to do is clarify the confusion around how to vote, which is really you're helping them to understand the instructions that is so simple. It's so unemotional. And if that can remove the barrier for people, then that is a, that is a huge win for very, very little cost. So that's what um, EVP and other get out the vote organizations are focused on EVP with a focus just on the environmental um, subsegment of voters. But, you know, I'll just say, for example, and the last thing I'll say about this, because I think it's really important in this upcoming Georgia runoff, for example, Last year, I believe there were two weeks or was it 19 days or so to um, to do early voting. This year, early voting has been shortened to five days. So the early voting window is much smaller. This is something that could be very confusing to people. Why in 2020 did I have a much bigger window to do my early voting? And now it's only, oh, it's only five days. Oh, we, we have to know that now. We have to understand those changes um, and so there's a lot at stake um, that's that's coming up here in Georgia, even though, you know, Democrats control the Senate, whatever, like it's every single vote in the Senate counts. Um, and it's incredibly important to look at things at a candidate level as opposed to just at the majority level, because each candidate also stands for something. Um, and so I would just say that if anybody's interested in this or learning more about it, there's um, an incredible actually webinar that EVP held for its community for free. And it's on YouTube. Um, the, the recording of it is on YouTube. So anybody who's like an election nerd or anything like that, you should definitely watch this. It is fascinating. Um, some of the numbers that I talked about are in there and we'll share it, the link in the um, show notes. so People can go and watch and learn if they're interested. Thanks, Susan. Uh, Naeem, just to wrap up this segment on the federal election, Curious, you know, you said that there was the good news was there was no signal to businesses because things are sort of staying the status quo. Because of that, what do you expect the federal government to do in terms of funding in the next two to, you know, two year election cycle? You know, I think if we're talking about the federal government, I don't think we're going to see a lot of, of anything new for the next couple of years, right? We we just had a once in a decade world's biggest climate bill passed. And so I think the focus now at the federal level will be on implementation. You know, from a carbon removal standpoint, that means DAC hubs, that means the new and improved 45Q, you know, many other climate policies. I think there's gonna be a lot of scrutiny around how these programs are implemented, how funds are used. Um, and that's something that everyone should be really mindful of. But I think the focus now is really, is really um, oriented around how is all of this going to be implemented? Because we're not going to see anything like the sorry, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, again anytime soon. And so that's where the focus is for the next two years. Well, I'm going to pivot to another once in a decade, fingers crossed event, which is the uh, 
total unraveling of the crypto company FTX. It was a complicated series of events that led to its collapse, but it has been compared to the run on the savings and loan industry or maybe on Lehman Brothers uh, back in 2008. So we were curious about its impacts on VC financing and who better to ask than Susan and Naeem about it. So starting with you, Susan, obviously an astonishing collapse. I've not seen this much coverage of crypto in the New York Times, I think ever. Um, what do you think its impact will be on the broader VC and investment landscape? And do you see any ripple into other industries like carbon removal or climate tech generally? Um, yeah, I think, man, it's a huge deal. And it's just very sad, really. Um, I don't agree with people that I think there's like a sentiment on Twitter and maybe elsewhere where, you know, people love to see the tall daisy get cut down. And um, uh, it's terrible that fraud was committed and that actually many, many customers of FTX were defrauded of their deposits. Um, who knows whether it was done, you know, in sociopathic malice or whether it was, you know, sort of uh, somebody getting in over their heads um, in terms of leverage and then looking desperately around for funds to cover that and then turning to customer deposits. Um, you know, sort of the the desperate gambler that keeps going in for more, who knows what it was, but none of us should be kind of delighting or like licking our chops that this happened. And I feel like that is sort of happening in some corners of the Twitterverse um, and even in VC where people are sort of self-satisfied that um, it's an I told you so on crypto. I think that's really, really sad. So at first, I'll, I'll just say that, that there's a little bit of um, division um, in the venture world around that. Crypto, the technology is, it's, it's easy to kind of confuse the technology with the people that, um, you know, are sort of putting it out there in the world. And unfortunately, there's so many stereotypes about, you know, the crypto bro or maybe sister or whatever, but the crypto person who's kind of a scammer or who's like skeezy or whatever. And this just really plays into that. Again, I don't know if that was the intention from the beginning or if this was something that um, isn't got out over their skis kind of moment. But regardless, none of us should be happy that this happened. And I do think that it will have an impact um, on venture. A lot of people don't think it will because... Um, you know, people will point to the fact that, hey, you know, what's $10 billion in the grand scheme of things? Um, that's less than Sequoia's AUM. And that's spread out across, you know, customer losses, the, the VC losses were 2 billion. Um, and really, it's a drop in the bucket for some of these. Uh, sorry, Sequoia's AUM is 80 something billion. I don't uh, like if I uh, said 8 billion, I misspoke, it's 80 something billion, but it's, it's less than, you know, the huge sums of money that many of these mega funds command, you know, the investors that lost money in um, FTX were SoftBank, Sequoia, Tiger Global, um, Lightspeed, Temasek, huge mega firms that raise billions and billions and have tens of billions um, under management, hundreds of billions collectively. Um, so, you know, 2 billion bucks, like 
it sounds like a lot. And of course it's a shame to burn money like that, but at the end of the day, it's not going to break these funds. I will say the funds that will be most affected are the ones that were crypto specific because they had much higher concentrations of their portfolio organized around FTX. So Naeem, you obviously are not, well, maybe I shouldn't say obvious, but you do not appear to be part of the crypto bros culture. Um, and I assume that, uh, you know, FTX is more of a distraction than something you pay a ton of attention to. But when you hear about FTX, what do you take from it? And do you feel like there's any warnings or things that we need to be thinking about on the climate tech side of the world? Well, you are right. I'm not a crypto bro, so I don't follow this very closely. But I think the lesson here that I think you can just broadly apply to you know, any business or any industries like this importance of operating with integrity, transparency and accountability. And I think that there's like a temptation in climate tech and carbon removal to, to scale quickly. Like that's a very real temptation, um, especially in climate when we're trying to solve a very real problem uh, in a very short period of time. Um, and so I think the message to those of us who operate in this space is that despite there being this imperative to grow and grow quickly, we can't lose sight of the fact that, you know, we need to operate in good faith and that's central to what we need to do. And adopting some kind of ends justifies the means narrative, whatever that looks like to you, could very well backfire. And so that's just something to keep in mind as we operate in an industry that there is a lot of pressure to scale. There is a lot of VC interest. There you know, are a lot of claims made about new technologies that uh, remain untested. And we need all that innovation. We need all that energy. We need all that dynamism and funding. But it needs to be, um, it, it needs to be anchored by a sense of integrity, transparency, accountability that I think was probably missing at least one of those three things we're missing with FTX and, and some of the other things that we've seen not go well in the crypto space. So it's it's a lesson for everybody and we'll see how we'll see how this all shakes out in the end. But I think those pieces are ultimately um ultimately important here. Yeah, and this is a question for you both, I think, um, as we kind of wrap up this segment. Uh is how do you maintain that integrity and transparency and ensure as you're rapidly scaling, you don't lose it? Um, you know, one of the things that I was struck by in the whole FTX debacle is the absolute lack of governance and the lack of due diligence it felt like by the VCs around the governance. So curious uh, to both of you how you can scale while also maintaining that that sense of purpose and integrity that you talked about, Naeem. So I'll start with you, Naeem, and then I'll move on to Susan. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think within an organization, it's it's about, I think ultimately it's about taking a long view, right? I think it's like, and that means that we need investors to take a longer view, especially when it comes to climate technology. We need uh, we need companies to take a longer view, and and that makes it that makes it more likely that we'll see you know, companies and organizations um, implement the right governance procedures internally. But it also means that other system actors that work in, in let's call it like the carbon removal space more generally, are going to want to see time spent at the front end to implement measurement reporting and verification standards, for example. 
I think that when we recognize that what we're trying to do is to solve a major problem over uh, and take a long view as opposed to a like quick win view, I think that leaves space for building some of these internal systems as well as external systems that are going to be necessary to create that integrity and transparency and accountability. But if we are in this race to scale uh, and trying to, you know, scale up as quickly as possible, you know, yeah, that's important. We need to do that. But if we don't have the full long game in view, I think we miss some of these really important pieces. I don't think this is the answer to, you know, how we uh, avoid an FTX situation in, in other industries, but I think it makes them, these sorts of situations a little less likely. Susan? There's a lot of FOMO. There is a lot of FOMO in venture. There's a lot of FOMO in climate venture. And I think a lot of why it's easy to blame the investors in the FTX scenario, but no investor wants to go in with no due diligence. No investor wants to wants there not to be a board, wants there not to be governance. Everybody wants those things, but sometimes, and we've all been in that position, sometimes you have to um, kind of waive your rights to those things in order to get access to a deal because it's so hot, especially if that was happening in 2020 or 2021. A lot of those rounds that FTX raised were in 2020 and 2021. Now, I happen to think that this year and next year are climate techs 2020 and 2021. So I think the lessons learned from FTX are highly salient to climate tech right now, which is that um, something that could look like a hot deal that's just got us burning up inside with FOMO, everything, you, you know, our, our job as investors is to be good faith stewards of capital. If you do a bad job, you might support an entrepreneur and create an industry and, and create a bunch of hype around something. But if all of those things ultimately fail, you're still not doing justice to the movement. We're not solving the ultimate problem. And in fact, um, we're probably hurting it more in the end. And we're not being good stewards of capital, which is like literally you sign it, a contract that says, I agree to do that. This is my job. Um, and so I think that like, that's probably the number one thing to take away. Like I've seen over the past couple of years, just an increasing amount of like scary dearth of diligence, I'll call it DOD, um, happening in climate tech. And partly it's driven by the fact that there are a lot of um, folks, I'll admit it like myself, that are part of generalist funds where some of the other partners aren't available, aren't there to ask hard hitting questions before a deal goes through because they're focused on SaaS or FinTech or what have you. Um, and part of it is driven by FOMO. Part of it is driven by just the amount of velocity that there is. You know, it feels like we're getting into a gold rush in climate tech, just as it felt like we were getting into a crypto gold rush in 2020 and 2021. What happens when there's a gold rush? Well, everybody, you know, anybody who's been in San Francisco used to be called the Barbary Coast, not for nothing. There were all kinds of like hucksters and scammers and, um, you know, every bad guy out there because it was a gold rush and there was an opportunity to make money. Um, an opportunity to, you know, probably be a hustler and be, you know, a trickster. And I think the same thing is happening. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not pointing any fingers, but I think the same thing could happen with all of the money that's coming into climate tech. We still have to pause and exercise discernment and make sure that, um, like, 
for example, like Naeem says, that the, the actual um, accounting methods are regular, that there's an agreed upon sort of set of standards that we look at before we go into something, I think that would be, especially set by um, outside parties, that would really, really help to straighten things out. But at the end of the day, my only hope is that um, the FTX experience will remind all of us that it's really important to pause and um, do good, sometimes slow work um, where we can and not get too, too caught up in the emotional um, hustle bustle of, of deal making as much as we can control that. Tortoise beats the hair. Um, all right. So in honor of Thanksgiving, we're going to do a quick round of what we're thankful for in carbon removal. So we will each have to answer these questions, including myself, and we'll do, you know, a quick one to two sentences of what we are thankful for. First off, many people are devoting themselves to growing carbon removal. Who is one that you'd like to shout out for a team and give thanks for? Susan, I'll start with you. Um, I'll shout out the people listening to this podcast, actually. I think you are incredible for caring about this. This is pretty wonky. Um, and, and, you know, by the way, we're all learning as we go. So thank you for also being forgiving, for being flexible, for laughing with us, all of it. And, and most of all, thank you for being here and being interested. It's incredible that like this podcast has even grown to what it is. And I'm surprised every day. I get outreach on LinkedIn or emails and people say, oh, I listen. I'm like, what you do? I thought, I thought this was just us having a conversation, you know, the four, the three of us. Um, but so I'm really impressed and, and thankful for that. Yeah. Some of my freakier moments is when, or when people are like, I recognize your voice. And I'm like, oh my goodness. That's wow. weird. Um, Naeem, your turn. Yeah. I'd like to shout out Di Ellis. Um, who, like me, used to work in global health. Uh, and he's an advisor and executive coach to a number of climate startups. And we used to work in an organization that was involved in scaling up access to HIV medicines using you know, financing mechanisms like advanced market commitments. And he's launched an excellent newsletter called The Great Unwind, which I think people should try to check out. Um, and why I'm shouting him out is that he's just, I'm thankful for him because he's brought up so much thought leadership around you know, what we learned in our previous kind of careers in, in global health, from driving down costs to find ways to pay for medicines to ensuring quality. And a lot of those lessons are not perfectly, you know, adaptable to or applicable to carbon removal, but they can be adapted to carbon removal. And so he writes, every time you write something, I devour it because I think there's some really great insights there. And as a new industry, I think carbon removal needs folks like Dai to help us think about you know, how we can do more than, than just kind of create this new market, but actually shape it into the one we want. So I, I wanted to be thankful for, for dying in, in this example. Yeah, I just watched his MRV video. It was really good, really interesting. All right, well, I'm keeping mine close to home and I'm going to give a shout out to the folks at Nori and very specifically the team that I work with. Um, they all are always acting as we as one of our company values with the end in mind and are continuously improving yet another one of our values. Um, I just so appreciate all the hard work they do, all their efforts to make CDR accessible to everyone and um, look forward to seeing what 2023 brings as we continue to grow and expand as a company. 
Next question, and I'll start with you, Naeem, on this one. Be it a company, nonprofit, or public agency, whose work has progressed the field in a way that you're grateful for? Yeah, so on this one, I'm going to call out Carbon 180. Um, I attended the carbon removal summit they hosted earlier this week here in Washington, DC, which was excellent. Um, but you know, over the last several years, like Carbon 180 has just done a lot of groundwork in creating a narrative and doing the field building around CDR, which is a part of why I think we have such a dynamic ecosystem here in the US. And I think it's it's a model that other countries should should try to adopt. Um, but in holding this summit a couple of days ago, you know, Carbon 180 has been keeping the momentum going around CDR in 2022 and beyond and helping industry and policymakers kind of see where we need to orient our attention going forward. So they are, they're not shy to say, you know, we need to focus on environmental justice or we need to, you know, effectively implement policies and start to build coalitions around government procurement and take MRV seriously. So it's it's been uh, really, really inspiring to just see them do their work. And I'm grateful for Carbon 180 to kind of continue the, the CDR momentum and keep people focused on just where this industry needs to go. And, and if you've ever met um, any of the folks there, they're also just really nice people. Susan? I am grateful to California state lawmakers for introducing the California Carbon Dioxide Removal Market Development Act very recently. Um, I think it was just three days ago that they announced it. They announced the bill. Um, and I think, you know, more than anything, what will be really important out of this is just how it drives the conversation, you know, something that California is very good at doing, right, is shaping the conversation, leading the narrative. Um, and it, specifically around what exactly counts as um, a valid negative emission, how does that get paid for, um, who's a credible buyer to that, um, and then how tactically do we make it so that we can actually fulfill against those credits um, and, and make it possible to um, get to that capacity. I think those are really, really important questions to be asking. And it's getting into the more sophisticated nuances as opposed to, I think like carbon removal circa 2018 would have just, or maybe even 2020 would have been much more um, around nice sounding pledges, but no how for how we get there. And now we're getting into the how, um, like really at the nitty gritty um, state lawmaking level. And I think that that's really exciting. And I'm Grateful for um, everybody that's part of that, that's taking leadership on this. Okay, that's a great one. And it nicely actually segues into what mine, which is at, uh, about a federal agency, NOAA, that I got to visit yesterday. They are doing incredibly interesting work, particularly around ocean CDR, building out the various technologies and other types of equipment that we need to really truly scale ocean CDR. And I appreciate their quiet hard work and their, you know, excitement about public and private partnerships that I think are necessary to probably scale, particularly ocean CDR to a to a the next level. So very grateful for all the work they do and all of their innovation. Finally, and again I'll start with you, Susan. Zooming out, what trend just generically within CDR gives you hope for the coming year? I mean, it has to be the collaboration between all of these different parties on the policy side, which we've talked about quite a bit today, but also um, in the private sector, everything from Stripe Frontier to, 
you know, well-established oil and gas companies getting involved. I think we need everybody to be a part of this. And um, it's great to see the openness that there has been on all sides to work together and collaborate. We need expertise from people that have been digging stuff up from the ground for a long time and, and using CO2 to injecting it already into the ground. Um, we need a policy push. We need innovators. We need funders. And every one of those players is coming to the table now. And I'm um, really thankful for that trend. Naeem? Yeah, the trend that I'm grateful for is the increasing level of attention that's being placed on measurement reporting and verification or MRV. Um, you know, MRV, I think, is critical to CDR's long-term success, you know, and it's really a tool for building trust, not just with buyers of carbon credits, but also improving transparency and trust with a lot of different stakeholders. And, you know, like we were talking about earlier, we can get so hung up on scaling CDR quickly that it's easy to lose sight of the need to ensure that carbon removal is done with a high level of integrity if we want to scale longer term. And the fact is that CDR is a long game. And so, um, you know, an increased degree of seriousness and thoughtfulness that I'm seeing across every, you know, stakeholder in the space that I speak to on this issue of, of measurement reporting and verification is something I'm grateful for as someone who is playing the CDR long game and wants to see this industry succeed in, in meeting its, its potential this century. And then finally, I think just sort of echoing both what Susan and Naeem kind of were alluding to, I'm just grateful for the attention that CDR is getting for the continual growth in intelligent, thoughtful people that are joining the conversation to push this, um, the whole industry forward. It's still in the toddler phase, as I think Guy was saying in his video, and I'm just really excited that what what I think is going to be from the toddler, toddler to the adolescent phase will be happening in the next year to two years, and it's um, just a really fun time to be in this space. And before I say goodbye, I just want to add one more thing that I'm thankful for, and that is my producer, Asa, who you might have heard last week as the host. He has made this show a real joy to work on, and uh, I want to just thank him for all of his hard work and keeping us all organized and coming up with some really good and thoughtful questions. So thank you, Asa. With that, I will wrap up our Thanksgiving episode of uh, Carbon Removal Newsroom and wish you both, Susan, Naeem, a wonderful short week next week and look forward to talking to you next month. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal. <laughs>